We will be continuing and concluding, hopefully, the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, go right, and eventually you'll get to the last book. We're at about the halfway point, not quite, but substantively we're at the, I guess, halfway point of the tribulation, and we'll be going through and recapping a bit of what was discussed last week. Before we get into chapter 12, let's first remember what the first chapter and first verse said. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in a chapter that's going to talk a lot about Satan and persecution and the dragon and devils and anything else that you'd probably hear at a metal concert, we'll go into more detail in a moment. This isn't the point of the book. We want to remind you all that any discussion that is being made in this book is meant for the revelation, for the glorification, for the clarification about who Jesus Christ is, even if it's by contrast. What John is essentially doing in this vision isn't even really presenting anything new. If you've noticed a trend in the teachings leading up to this point, we've been spending most of the time just quoting the Old Testament. So he's essentially just putting new, and or not new, but old information in new order so that we have this all laid out for us. But the purpose of all of this and any attention that we give should be taken in order to make Jesus more glorious. So discussing this issue, the revelation, the making clear of this passage, first of all, it's a passage that seems very unclear to most people who read it because it's very symbolic. The good news, however, is that the symbols are all either quotations of things already defined in the Bible or immediately explained in the span of two verses. The two easiest examples are the woman clothed in the sun, moon under her feet, a tiara of 12 stars. That was a word-for-word quotation of Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11. It's Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11, where Jacob defines those symbols as a picture of him, his wife, Rebecca in this case, or Rachel, excuse me, and the 12 children that they sired, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what this woman signifies. And also note a dragon is introduced, and we know that Satan, because verse 9 literally says it was Satan. So not a lot of mystery there. But following Satan being cast out of heaven and fulfilling Jesus' prophecy in Luke ten eighteen, as a literal event in the future, the context of it, of course, in Luke 10 was, and if you were there on our Sunday morning study, clarifying to the apostles, look, Satan is a defeated foe. It's going to be official someday in the future, but I'm giving you authority to cast down the authorities of darkness. And if the greatest authority of darkness is already defeated, then you guys have nothing to worry about because I give you this power. Well, what we saw was at the halfway point of the tribulation, historically, Satan is officially cast down to the earth. And where we begin is essentially the response to that on a part of heaven and earth which are, interestingly enough, very bipolar reactions. Some will be positive, others will be negative. So why don't we read the first three verses, and we'll get into those and see how far we get. Uh, starting, of course, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. This, of course, is following Revelation chapter 10. And you want me to read verse it? Nine. Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God strength, uh, and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. 
Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay, so starting us off, four things are announced by this voice in heaven. We aren't told who it is, an angel, the father, the son, the spirit. We aren't told, just a voice. So we'll address it as such. Uh, Gives us four things, four, three reasons. First, salvation. Second, strength, the kingdom of God, and then the power of Christ. Why? Because the devil has been cast down. He is no longer Mm -hmm. accusing you before the father day and night, and he's not happy. He's got a short time. So working with that information, again, let's take this piecemeal so we don't get lost in the weeds. Salvation, strength, the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. That's verse 10. Now, what can we take from that passage alone? Well, I think it's an amazing it's an amazing passage because it kind of opens up another world to us once again. And that's what revelation is. It is a revealing, right? It's a revealing of not just what's going to go on here on the earth, but what goes in the spiritual realm. And, and I love this. It says now salvation after this uh, amazing kind of spiritual warfare that takes place and this casting out of heaven, uh, that God does to Satan then there's this declaration of now, and and it's really interesting. It's like an emphatic now. It, it is happening, and and again, the Bible is an amazing sixty six books, so intertwined, so co- uh, connected, and and you you get this idea that everybody is waiting for this now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. I mean, haven't you ever looked at the world and you've just been like, man, is this ever going to end? You know, is it ever going to, you know, is the madness going to stop? Is the, just the confusion going to stop? Is it ever going to get better? And there's always a lot of times this weird hope that we have as Christians, and somehow we get into this illusion that we think that somehow a new president or a new government or a new system is going to fix it. You know, we get into that sometimes, and we think, oh, it's going to be great. And it just never does, right? It never does. But at this point in the tribulation, we get this declaration, this heavenly declaration that it, it, it's, it's happening now. Jesus is returning. The Messiah is coming. The power of his Messiah. All the passages that spoke of the power of the Messiah, the strong arm of the Lord, that the Lord will go before his people and he will conquer and they will be victorious. All of the Bible passages, I mean, almost all the Bible speaks of these kind of things of God going ahead of you and and helping his people and conquering the enemies and all this. And now the power of Christ. You know, a lot of times when you think of Jesus, Sean, you don't think of Jesus in his first coming as very powerful. He died on a cross in a very humiliating way, being rejected And so here you see, from the heavenly perspective, a total flip, like in the sense of they all know the victories there. It's it's it was purchased. It's it's been taken care of. But now they they are anticipating the final fulfillment 
in the power of Christ coming to the earth. And boy, it's going to be powerful. We're going to see just how powerful. Yeah, and it's basically reiterating the point that was made in the end of Revelation chapter 11. The seventh trumpet announced the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Mm -hmm. The plague follows, but note, this is a conjoined event. The third woe is essentially the introduction of the tribulation into the great tribulation. And the difference is not only Satan's involvement, which he has been since Eve, or Eden rather, but is physically, directly, and emotionally invested in his involvement. Yet from heaven's perspective, there's things to celebrate. For example, salvation. What have we been saved from? In this case, the accusations of the accuser, the one who accused them before our God day and night. Now, what's that a reference to? Well, in the book of Zechariah, this is the Old Testament, chapter 3 and verse 1, there was an incident where the high priest at the time, his name was Joshua, interestingly enough, the same name as Jesus, but it wasn't Jesus, you get the point, uh, was standing before the angel of the Lord, more on that in a second, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord interesting, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. (laughs) The Lord said to the Lord. The Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. Not I rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. And the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now you can read the next two verses on your own time, but the interesting thing was it was basically a self-fulfilling argument in Satan's favor because the priest, Joshua, was clothed in filthy garments. I don't want to get too graphic, but let's just say in the Hebrew, they were really dirty. And Mm -hmm. Jesus tells them, this is the angel of the Lord speaking, take from him his filthy garments and put on him clean garments, rich robes, literally. And this is, of course, a reference to the prophet Isaiah. But what's interesting about this is where we get the word Satan to begin with. It literally means accuser. It's not his name as much as it is a description of what he does, how he relates to us. Because Satan, or Diabolos, or devil, is a legal term used to describe an attorney trying to get you sentenced as guilty and condemned in court. Mm. And in this case, it was the high priest Joshua, whose name means God is Savior. And he's being accused before God, like Revelation 12 describes him doing to this day. Him being cast down is worth celebrating because these accusations have finally ceased. Why? Because of the strength of our Lord. The finished work of Jesus has saved us from the fact Satan has a point. We have a lot of things that he can accuse us of. But interestingly enough, the price has been paid. And just like with Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3, the Apostle John, same writer's revelation, made this statement. Little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Let's be realistic. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation, literally the ransom payment, not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Mm. So if we have an accuser, we have the prosecuting attorney, who's the defense attorney? Mm-hmm. God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. And in verse 11, it says, they overcame him, and the they sounds like the people who actually go through the tribulation, the they... Those who are being martyred at this time, and pretty much anyone throughout history. Yeah, and they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. The book of John also says that we have overcome by our faith, 
right? And you were quoting First John just now that we have a, a lawyer on our side. And of course, we need a lawyer on our side because Satan's book is pretty big uh, on us, and we are guilty uh, to break the law of God. There's no doubt about that. But it says we overcome in the book of First John uh, chapter 5, verse 4, and whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So this is how we overcome Satan in our life, is by trusting in Jesus. It's not trying to go in like, you know, some people try to battle Satan like one-on-one, you know, and they kind of try to go at it like that. And there's Sometimes we kind of have this kind of overconfidence, you know, as Christians, where we go, man, I'm going to go at Satan. I'm going to really give it a whirl, you know, kind of thing. And the, and, the, and the Bible just tends to say, hey, you know what? You go to Jesus, and, and you, you have Jesus deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. You know, and that's the right approach to things in, in spiritual warfare. Um, you know, sometimes I, 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 when I came out to Tucson, I did two live radio shows and they were both like hip hop, uh, music, you know, rap music. And, um, and it was funny cause I was getting all this Christian rap music from all over. But one of the predominant themes was the spiritual warfare in Christian rap music. And, and I was always really shocked how bold they were, man. They were just like, I'm going to get you, Satan, and I'm going to... And they would talk like like gangsters, like beating up on Satan, you know? It was kind of that approach. It was a real, real kind of cocky approach, you know? And I was always like, oh, I don't know if I like that too much and think that's, a, that's too biblical. You know, it's interesting, but in the Bible, it, it warns us to not throw out words about satan speak evil of dignitaries right right not to speak evil of dignitaries thanks i was trying to think of that exact phrase uh but not to speak evil of dignitaries we we have to understand that there's a spiritual world and god's created it and there's got to be some respect to that they are above us right so we should default to the one above them that's, that's right why. that's what we're doing we're overcoming him by the blood of the lamb the work of christ as you mentioned and the word of their testimony their testimony is what jesus is the christ yeah, it's not my story it's how he got a hold of me that's yeah. our strength not just salvation but strength have come and that's what the second point is built on whose strength mine I nope. hope not. <laughs> I can right. barely bench 200, right? But if, on the other hand, our Savior's strength, we see that demonstrated and how it was demonstrated in Colossians chapter 2. This is verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses, thanks, Paul, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, all the things that we could be accused of. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now here's where the warfare component comes in. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In what? In the cross. So if it's not based on the finished work of Christ, every single accusation that the enemy or you or the world would level against you probably has merit. 
But because of the finished work of cross, every single note of handwriting against us, every accusation that could be held up before the only court that matters, it's already taken care of. It's already basically covered and illegible based on the blood of the lamb. Yeah, and boy, what freedom it is to live in that way, to know that your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't have to be overburdened. You know, if you're here today and you're going, man, I got a lot of sin going on in my world. You know, just remember the work of Christ for you. You know, come back to the cross. Come back to what Jesus has done for you. Find your joy in that handwriting of requirements being snuffed out, being taken away. Yeah, John three thirty six. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life, and but I, the wrath of God abides on him. And I love that that Colossians passage. That was Colossians chapter 1, right? 2. 2. Chapter 2 is really cool. He uses that term triumph. He has triumphed over them. The reason why is because I like the band Triumph. I grew up uh, in that era, man, of the Us Festival and all those things. I remember the band Triumph, man, and they were awesome. And and I always thought of, you know, when they would sing their songs, man, they had these interesting lyrics. And I always wondered if they were Christian, man, because they sounded so biblical. Like when I got older, I was like, man. But that passage just brings that out, that, you know, Jesus has triumphed, you know, over everything. I don't have, are you burdened by the government? Are you burdened by everything? Is everything weighing you down? Or do you live a life of triumph, you know, or do you feel that in your heart and in your mind? You know, are you living a life of victory, of triumph, you know, because your king is, (laughs) you know, Jesus has triumphed. And so the question is, is am I as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, am I exuding that triumph in my own life or am I bogged? Is my mind on other things? Because when I look at Christ, man, man, I see, gosh, he's triumphed. He's given me that um, power as well. He's given me that promise as well uh, that I, too, am an overcomer. Man, there's a lot of hope there. And, you know, there's a lot of things that can raise us from our despair of the current climate, you know. So so, so salvation and strength, yeah. the kingdom of God. Now, yes. again, which kingdom? Well, wherever the king reigns, that's his kingdom. And once again, quoting previous scriptures, Jesus defined the kingdom of God when the Pharisees challenged him about it. Mm. Where is the kingdom of God coming? And he replied to them, it doesn't come by seeing, but is within you. And we see Paul further detail this in Colossians 1 and verse 27, where he says to them, this is speaking to us, everybody, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So just like our only strength that takes away the one weapon that the enemy could use against us effectively is found in Christ, we are not only in Christ, Christ is in us, which totally deflates the argument that Christians could be possessed or demonically oppressed or in these sort of things, because light's already there. Darkness can't cohabitate with that. Mm. And if we understand that, then all of the spiritual deception, conflu- uh, confusion, and stupor are ultimately going to fall in line. Why? The enemy can't touch our hearts because it's already occupied and owned by his superior. Mm. If that is our working knowledge, then any other 
false truth or any other truth ends up falling in line with what we can know for certain. The celebration in heaven of the enemy being cast down isn't just that he finally shut up, that he's not accusing us before the Father anymore. Not just that that work is meaningless because that power has been taken away from him, but Christ's authority is now in place. Uh, like the uh, song uh, that I try to listen to every Easter, uh, David Meese's song, Early in the Morning, uh, one of the stanzas emphasizes now the good king reigns. Mm -hmm. The dragon's teeth are bare. The whole emphasis that was being made on this is, interestingly enough, also tying into the fourth point, the power of Christ, which, oddly enough, wasn't in his power as creator. He didn't just unmake creation and recreate it perfect. He was willing to become a servant, like the song El Shaddai. I know Amy Grant popularized it, but do you remember who originally wrote it? It was a somewhat uh, heavily Jewish-inspired scripture. The uh, title for El Shaddai is, again, a little graphic, but the emphasis in one of the lyrics is, I think, really key here. Your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son. That was something that was, as Paul said, foolishness to the Jew, or uh, uh, blasphemy to the Jew, foolishness to the Greek. But to us, it's life and life everlasting. And why is that? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, they call this the Carmen Christi. It's an early church song where they would celebrate just like what we were doing in worship earlier. They'd reflect on who Jesus was and how we were to live in light of this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord, literally, the covenant name of God, Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. And like the previous points draw attention to being our king, our conqueror, our savior, and our sole victory against the enemy's power, it all centers around what he's done that made our enemy have the kind of temper tantrum we're warned about. All of his power in an eternal sense is taken away. Now the only power he can exercise at this point in history is on the earth. Yeah. If you're still on the earth, that's something to be concerned about. Yeah, because that's what it says. <laughs> but if you don't belong to this earth or you don't or you're not currently on this earth, you're in heaven, then you have nothing to be concerned about. In fact, you have reason to rejoice at this point in history because there's no meaningful power left to the enemy. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body, which is going to be happening a lot, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's not a power Satan has had or will ever have. So then noting that point, and continuing on to verses 11 through 12, the good news, bad news propositions, as well as those who are living at this point of the tribulation, that's after the sixth trumpet judgment, at the halfway point when the witnesses have been taken up into heaven. You can read about this in Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. But we benefit from knowing these two simple facts. So the, the, the three and a half years, the first three and a half is done. Yeah, this is where we're at chronologically. And mm -hmm. if you'd like further details for the sake of time, feel free to give us a call on our radio program. We'll go into more detail then. But here's what we can take away noting by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And as well, the devil coming down 
unto us, having great wrath, knowing he has a short time. The first is a good news, bad news proposition because we overcame him. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 8 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So if that's the good news, that we overcame him, but simply by drawing near to God, and mm-hmm. there'll be more application for that in a moment, the bad news is we did not love our lives to the death, which is acknowledged again in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, where he notes, Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary... There's that word again. The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So noting how do we resist him? Remember James' point, draw near to God. Why would that be such a simple solution? Why can't it be more complicated? Why are you trying to make our battle harder? Why why can't it be simple? I like things that are easy. It's less sweat. The point being made is this. If we overcome him and we can overcome him, how does that look? It doesn't mean having a carefree life. It doesn't mean having a problem-free life. But it means that every opportunity, every excuse I get, we were asked on the radio program today, how do I know if the world's just going wrong or if I'm being legitimately attacked by the enemy? And I kind of squinted and I went, well, the solution's the same, so I won't really need to know if it's coming from the enemy or it's just coming from this fallen world. The response is the same, so I just stick to that. But what about this other stat? The devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Uh, The good news in that is he has a short time, so that means he's probably not going to waste time. If we draw near to God, he's going to be like, well, I don't have time for this, right? But if, on the other hand, the bad news is he has great wrath. He's out for blood. And as Jesus stated again in John 10.10, that's his one and only goal concerning you. He does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. We'll go more into the significance of the symbols here regarding the land, earth and the sea in a moment. But regarding that statement in verse 12, there's a lot of details people would want to go into, and we don't want to get caught in segues about like, well, what about Satan's ontology as a cherub? And what about the uh, significance of Ezekiel? It's above my pay grade. Yeah, bro. I'm, 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 I'm going to stick to what's written here, man. I'll just but, walk. I'll step down right now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get into it either, but the point being made is this. Satan is the opposite of Jesus' character. A liar is contrasted by the truth. John 18, 27. Those who hear the truth hear my voice. A thief is contrasted by a gift giver. Jesus offers himself as his reward in Revelation 22 and verse 12. The accuser is contrasted by our advocate, our defender. See Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. So if he's our enemy by name, that's how we relate to him. Don't pray to him. Don't tell him that you're going to curse him out. Just leave, like Greg Laurie says, if Satan knocks at your door, send Jesus to answer it. And also note as well, Satan's time is short. Make the most of your time while he wastes his. Now, regarding this passage, that's, I think, all I need to say. Anything more you want to add before we go to verse 13? Um, I would just touch base on the last part of verse 11. um, And they did not love their lives to the death. The idea there, um, I think, is is, um, really shared by something Jesus prayed in the book of John chapter 12 that I think is really important and something that you might want to read over um, just in a daily way of doing a devotion in your life. But Jesus says the hour has come. This is John chapter 12, verse 23. He says the hour has come for the son of man himself to be glorified. 
He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now he's talking about his death, right? I need to, I need to do this. Now he says something amazing in verse 25 that will just give you some good chill conviction. He who loves his life will lose it. Now think of the revelation passage, the people that overcame, they did not love their life to the death, meaning they weren't, they weren't resisting dying for Christ. You know, they weren't resisting dying for the Lord. They weren't suicidal, but in a world literally turned against them. These last three and a half years targeted and geared, we'll talk about this more in the next chapter, towards exterminating anyone who names the name of Jesus. Right. And they overcame Satan. It might not look like it, but they overcame Satan by their faith and their testimony. By allowing a death to happen that was, uh, well, quite frankly, why we're looking forward to avoiding it. Yeah, but this is what, how they do it. This is how martyrs have done it all through the ages. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. Vital. There is a necessary hating if I am going to have eternal life. And this is what Jesus talks about. If I really love, then there is a necessary hating that needs to happen. I need to learn to hate my life in this world to keep it for the next. If I don't, if I don't do this, if I don't hate my life in this world, then I will hold on to this world. You will make decisions in your life and I will make decisions in my life based on narcissism, based on what you want to do, not based on the glorification of God. That's what will happen if I do not hate my life in this world. Instead of staying in that relationship, I will leave it. Though it's hard to stay in. Maybe God wants me to stay in because I want to honor God in that way. You see? So I want to stay there. I want to say, God, I want to glorify you. But I need to hate my life in this world to do that. There needs to be a necessary hating in order to love properly. And there's many examples I could choose from. I chose relationships because that's easy, right? We all have relationships and it's, it's sometimes easy to bail. But there's many different times in our life where I have to learn so I don't hold on to something that I want to do. I have to be able to say, I hate my life in this world because there's something greater. There is someone who's greater. And so that's, I think, what's going on in the minds of those people that are overcomers. Now, um, in the book of Revelation, where they did not love their life to the death, they went, they had this necessary hating of their life in this world, and they were looking for the eternal life. And that's something awesome. If I'm looking for the eternal life, man, I am going to persevere, you know? And, but then woe to you. This is the third woe, right? Of the three woes. 
This is the third woe. In, in the book of Revelation, we got to like, hey, this is the first woe. Now there was the, hey, this is the second woe. Locusts tormenting people <laughs> for five months. A third of the planet wiped out or the remaining planet wiped out by an army. Demonically inspired or empowered, we aren't certain, <laughs> but nonetheless scary. Now the kingdom's announced, but uh, let's see. Uh, I guess, pronouncement with consequences. Yeah, so here we finally get to this third woe. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. And I'll just say this real briefly. This was my first Bible study ever. Um, Revelation chapter 12, verse 12. I just want to share this with you because it's so cool. 12 years old. Totally stoked. Iron Maiden just came out with an album. Number of the Beast. So stoked. Man, I put on Iron Maiden first thing out of the out of the album. No, no, I'm not a Christian kid at all. Woe to you of earth and sea. And it's this voice that's just like, whoa. You know, it says, for the devil has come down to you, knowing his time is short. And I'm just like, whoa, dude. <laughs> at 12 years old, I was like, that's radical, man. Like, what was that about? Like, dude, like the Satan's coming down to us. Like, you know, and then I read an article as a kid that Iron Maiden got it from the Bible. That was my first Bible study ever. Was Eddie there? Eddie is the mascot of Iron Maiden. He was not, he was somewhere on the t-shirt I had, but, um, it's always a treat when Eddie shows up in an Iron Maiden concert. Yeah. But I, I want, I wanted to share with you how, you know, the Bible says that the word of God does not go out void, right? It does not go out void. I remember Marilyn Manson. Remember, remember Marilyn Manson, that, that singer? I remember Marilyn Manson, man. It, it was, he was like ripping up Bibles and throwing them into the audience. And everybody was like, in an uproar, the Christians were bummed. And I was like, why are you guys bummed? Dude, praise God. This guy's giving out the word of God in his concerts. He's literally ripping it up. Sure, you know, you can be bummed at that, I guess. But you know how, you know how many kids are going to get that, that little momentum? And they're going to go home and they're going to tack it up on their wall. And then they're going to just be sitting there and like, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I wonder what that's about. Why do you rip that up? It's so positive. And, you, and, and a lot of us go, a lot of us, see, a lot of us don't believe in the power of God. You don't believe in it. You hear it, but you don't believe it. Dude, I believe it. God's word coming out of an Iron Maiden album. Dude, spoke to this kid's heart and made me think, dude, that's amazing. Where's that from? I need to learn about that. I want to learn about that. That's an amazing passage. When Metallica came out, Creeping Death, the song Creeping Death by Metallica, I heard that and I was like, Pharaoh? Exodus? I, you know, Moses? Who are these people? What is Metallica talking about? The angel of death. Creeping Death. You know, you, gotta, uh, you have to understand that God is powerful. He can touch us in amazing ways so i'll end there with my my little testimonies well just one more up but it uh, says i do overcome by the lamb of god right the blood of the lamb and our testimony (laughs) just one more this is one i always get uh ear to ear over the song tourniquet by evanescence definitely not a christian band definitely not a christian audience but 
it's literally a prayer after a failed suicide attempt for salvation. She says Christ yeah. calling out for saving. It's amazing. She's bleeding to death. It's amazing how sometimes out of the most interesting mouths, right, come actually scripture. And, uh, you know, God speaks through donkeys. We see that in the book of Numbers, man. So, uh, All right, so yeah. verse 13, uh, back to the symbols in case you were tired of things being clear. Now, <laughs> when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male <laughs> child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And who are they who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ? Mm. Now, just like the beginning of this chapter started with symbols, it ends with symbols. Mm. Hopefully, and again, we'll just repeat for the sake of clarity and for those taking notes, the woman identified who gave birth to the male child. The male child is quoting Psalm 2. It's a reference to Jesus. The woman, Genesis 37, 9 through 11, her features, Israel. Israel. The dragon, see verse 9 of this chapter, that's Satan. Now, (laughs) there's a few symbols that we aren't told, like, for instance, the wings. Obviously, or the water that comes out of the dragon's mouth. It's not a fire-breathing dragon, it's a water-breathing dragon. But that being said, I guess water-breathing serpent, but that's another issue. What we do know about this chapter is, again, the dragon and the woman, clearly a point made about ongoing conflict between Satan and God's chosen people. And this will particularly manifest itself during the second half of the tribulation after, this will be the catalyst starting it, the death of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 and the deaths of the 144,000. We'll talk about that more in chapter 14. But this great wrath will be first directed towards the Jewish people and fail. How? Well, again, more symbols that we aren't certain about the significance of, but the outcome we are. First of all, the symbol about the wings given to the woman. What are those? I don't know. There's a few theories, uh, some having biblical merit, others not so much. The more patriotic have said, oh, this is describing the 747 jets the United States will send to deliver Israel from the Antichrist, and we'll be on their side. That's clear. I I certainly see that. No. uh, (laughs) I'd say... um, 747. Yeah. Pan Am. No, I think a more (laughs) rational approach would be, given that the same language is used by God in Exodus 19 and verse 4, describing him delivering Israel from Egypt. And that's a cool passage. Read that one if you can. Yeah. Uh, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings Mm. and brought you to myself. Now, what kind of intervention will that be? Well, we saw at the Exodus, it was splitting a water, a very not natural way of travel. But if, on the other hand, I were to say, so is there going to be a lake that will part for Israel? Is that (laughs) unlikely? But what we do know is just like the supernatural intervention we saw with Moses, it wasn't natural by any means that way either. Because remember, it wasn't just the parting of the Red Sea. You still got an army behind you. Those of you who remember in the Prince of Egypt, the uh, fire tornado that was guiding them through the... um, nighttime and the tornado regular that guided them during the day. It wasn't a wall of fire 
particularly that stopped the Egyptian army. I thought it was a nice effect visually, but it was actually darkness that made the horses freak out and they couldn't travel anywhere until the people of Israel had crossed over. Then when they followed in, then the water came and that was pretty accurate. But the point being made is emphasizing that is God held back the armies that were trying to destroy them and allowed the people of Israel to pass through supernaturally. Now, there's a lot of passages that would note the emphasis, the hurry that Israel was supposed to express when they saw the abomination. We'll talk about that next chapter. They are to flee to the wilderness. Don't go down and get your coat. Don't pack a bag. Just get out of Dodge. Are there any more passages and, and, we should keep in mind? Yeah, and, and, and what Sean's referring to is Jesus, when he spoke in Matthew 24 about the abomination of desolation, and we've talked a little bit about that, that happens midstream uh, in the tribulation period. So after the first three and a half years, this abomination takes place in the temple. We referred to that back in uh, chapter 11. And we will again in 13. And we will again. When Jesus mentions the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, immediately after, the verses immediately after he talks about the abomination of desolation, he talks about uh, the fleeing of the Jews. He talks about a time where they will have to flee once again. And here we see this happening in this section where Satan now is going after Israel, going after the woman going after the Jews. And this passage is spoken of quite a bit. Um, and uh, there's so much that I would like to get into. But let me just say this first, is that Israel was warned by God in Deuteronomy 28, 64 through 67. So Israel was warned way back in the day that among the nations, Israel would find no rest if they disobeyed God. That Israel would be kicked out of their land and that they would not find any rest and that God would one day bring them back into that land. And there's passages that talk about God actually protecting them from this incredible time of tribulation known as Jacob's trouble, which if you know anything about Jewish history, they've been through quite a bit of trouble already. Yeah. And, and it's, it's beautifully put. Um, I wish I had time to go into some of these passages, but I'll, I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. If you just give me a moment, I'm going to go there and read that Ezekiel 20 verse 33. Because I think you guys will kind of start getting some of this. Now, everything we're reading in Revelation is really um, fulfilled. Um, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, where am I at? Is we're, we're seeing a fulfillment of a lot of passages at this moment where Israel is going to be persecuted in the end times by the Antichrist and they're going to have to go into the wilderness. Now, this wilderness experience that they're going to face is something that has been predicted many times in the Bible. Some of the most beautiful statements of God talking to Israel is about this moment that we're actually in in the book of Revelation, about them going into the wilderness and finding safety. For so, three and a half years. For three and a half years, yeah. So I'm trying to get there. 
um, uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. It says, as I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, this is God's power, uh, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. I mean, you could see God, man, just going, I, the, the power of Christ, right? Remember, we just got done reading about that, the power of the Messiah. I will bring you out from the people and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my case with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness. So Ezekiel's written a long time after the time of Pharaoh and Moses. But this is what's being referred to. God says, you know what? Just as I was in the wilderness with your forefathers, and just as I talked to them, so I am going to meet you, Israel, face to face once again in the latter days. And it's amazing. It says, and just as I pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord. I will make you pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So God has these promises to Israel about meeting them in the wilderness. And we can talk about Isaiah prophesying about the lands of Edom opening up her gates to welcome her people back once again, even though they refused them once, again, reference to Exodus. We can talk about all of the prophecies made in the minor prophets in regards to the significance, perhaps, of why Damascus would be destroyed as a city, but Petra would not, and the theory surrounding that. But again, for the sake of time, let's stick to what we know. We're told that this woman we know as Israel yeah. was given wings using similar language we saw in Exodus of God bringing people out unnaturally from a place of persecution into a place of safety, and she would be provided for three and a half years. The language is repeated again and again throughout the prophets of God meeting with his people again, there being a second exodus, if you will, from Jerusalem this time Mm -hmm. and back to it again. So if we're going to put this again piecemeal, we have to understand the prophecy isn't giving us details about the how, but the what will come of it. Mm -hmm. And we know that, as Zechariah said, all of Israel is going to be saved. And Joel makes the same point. We can understand that this intervention on God's part will not be subtle, but the text is not as clear. So if we're going to come to conclusions, it would be, again, file away for further information as to what that's going to be like. Mm -hmm. But what's going to be done, that is absolutely clear. God will provide and protect his people the same way he did in Exodus. Yeah, and it's interesting because Zechariah 13, 8, 9, and this is like an old-fashioned Bible study now, but Zechariah 13, 8, 9 tells us that in these days, God will be with his people but they're going to go through incredible persecution. Mm-hmm. In chapters 13, chapter 13 of Zechariah 8 through 9, it says that two-thirds of the Jews will be killed. Mm-hmm. So when it talks about Satan going after Israel, 
This is no, like, small deal we're talking about. This is a huge persecution in the latter days that's taking place. God, though, is using it, as Hosea 2 says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. God will bring Israel, who has rejected God, but now he is going to open up their eyes. God is going to do this work. They They're, saw the two witnesses. They saw their miracles. They're right. like, we missed our Messiah. Right, and God will bring them into... Do you see this love relationship? Now, in Hosea, it's spoken of as a husband and a wife. That's how it's talked about with Israel and God in the book of Hosea. And, and the, the term terms are so loving. I will allure you into the wilderness. I will woo you there. I am going to bring you into a place of safety. When so many are being killed, I will bring my remnant. That's an Old Testament term, meaning I will bring a, a group of my people into safety. Some people believe that will be the city of what? Oh, some believe Petra, Petra? others in yep. regions of Jordan and uh, what would be known back then as Edom again today, parts of Saudi Arabia as well. But we aren't, again, sure about the details, just the fact there will be a place for it. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to read Isaiah 26 because I find it so cool, too. What a neat passage this is. Um, in Isaiah, tucked away in Isaiah 26, verse 20, it says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And this, of course, is Whoa. speaking in a very broad stroke of Israel being provided for a time until the Lord's return where he comes and avenges his enemies. Yeah, just a super powerful passages um, of God's, you know, I love that. I, hide yourself, as it were, just for a little moment, this three and a half years. There's going to be a time where Israel will need protecting. No one in the world will protect Israel. No. All nations will be against Israel, it says in the latter days. Every nation will be against Israel in the latter days. They will not have a government on the planet that will be for them. You know, think of the hatred towards the Jews in the world that has happened in the world. Think of how much hatred there has been. And think of what a unique group of people that make up what? 0.5 of uh, 1% of the whole world. I mean, just such a small percentage of the world are Jewish people. Yet amazing people. Think of Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, even a guy, Karl Marx. You know, these guys... The most influential people in history. Jewish, right? Amazing, right? Incredible persecution against this people group. Why? And it's happening again. You look at the news. I just read another article on on hatred towards Israel, hatred towards Jewish people. But it's it's still kicking even today. And so so the Bible's giving us a a just a, an an incredible forewarning that we haven't seen nothing yet. I mean, something really bad is going to happen. Well, and where does this opposition come from? It says that water spewed from the serpent's mouth to carry the woman away. Now, again, just like with the wings, what's that a symbol of? 
we can be a little more certain, but not dogmatic. There's an illustrate or there's a use of the symbol that it's given an illustration and an explanation in Revelation 18, but not in the same context. So I'll leave that out as a warning in case you say this is an explanation just like Revelation 12 and verse 9. This is Revelation 18 and verse, or excuse me, 17 and verse 15. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, that'd be different, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, the reason why I'd be more certain about this as opposed to the wings issue being more vague is because like you read in Ezekiel 20 and in other passages, you see this theme in Scripture, just like in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, of waters being this theme of the nations outside of Israel, the land and the sea, those who are in God's land and those who are around God's land. So if you see water being used generally, it's used to describe the nations around Israel. The only clarification I'd encourage is in another passage, Isaiah 59 and verse 19, where just like in the Exodus, God uses this language to describe nations, not just nations, but just armies coming after them for battle. This is Isaiah 59, 19. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against them. So both interpretations can be appropriate in that everyone will want, everyone on the planet will want the Jewish people dead. We see the same irrational hatred of the Jewish people demonstrated today by all of those, pay attention to this, who share the heart of our enemy. It's no accident that Muslims, humanists, and socialists have a specific and focused hatred on the idea that the Jewish people exist and at the same time are the greatest sources of evil and opposition to Christ in modern day. Mm. Anyone who names themselves a Christian and harbors hatred of the Jewish people is sinning. God still loves his people. Sharing the heart of our enemy towards anyone is not recommended for a godly attitude. Mm. But then going to verse 17 and noting the dragon is going to be mad about his failure to wipe out the Jewish people to carry them away in this flood. He says he was enraged with the woman and went to make war with her offspring. Now that's explained for us. Who are the offspring of this woman? I thought she just had one male child. Well, like Paul continuously references us as the bride of Christ or those children of his adoption or members of the kingdom of God uh, grafted in, the book of Romans says, to the wild olive tree that is Israel. It says, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So what's going to define the tribulation from this point? Death, specifically death of good people. Yeah, and this is what I find. uh, It really is a fulfillment of that abomination of damn. Uh, desolation. Of desolation that Daniel spoke about in 9:27, where in Daniel 9:27 he says, "And on the wing of abo- abomination he will make things desolate." And how that'll be enforced and, will be given to us in the next chapter. Yeah, and so basically what it means is that Satan's this is where Satan now is no longer Mister Peace. He's no longer just. He's like, not the white horse with a bow right. saying, "Hey, everyone, I promise you peace, but don't deliver on it." Right. He's on a, a wing of abomination. It is now just abominable what he's doing from here on out. You will worship me as the true and living God, or your head will roll. Right. And uh, yeah, and so we're going to see how his his uh, hierarchy, how his 
you know, system is going to be set up in this coming chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just absolutely stunning how it relates to us today. So just to recap for everything we've been through, our one and only victory against the power of Satan is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Second is the significance of symbols in Scripture are either about to be explained or already have been. Don't read the 66th book if you haven't read the first 65. And then finally, Satan hates the Jewish people. Don't follow his example. Amen. Now, uh, before we close off in prayer, uh, we've pretty much used the time that we intended. Uh, since we've talked about the nation of Israel in some length, and especially the enemy's ongoing opposition to them, uh, why don't we close out this service with the time of prayer? Uh, all of you as well, on your own, we encourage you to, as Scripture commands, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why don't you close us out, Bo, with a prayer for Jerusalem and her people, and we will see you all again on Sunday. Yeah, sounds good. It's a good way to end after this conversation, this talk. Father, we we first just come to you and want to remember that you are holy, that you are our holy God, and you are our father, our dad, and and that you did something so wonderful for us. And, and Father, we thank you that you have engrafted us in, into uh, the, the Jewish culture, Lord. You've given us descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and You've given us the inheritance of the Ten Commandments and your laws, and and you've given us your Messiah, Jesus. And we are so grateful for the Jewish people, so grateful for the heritage that they have, so grateful for the scriptures that they've um, just held on to year after year of persecution. Lord, we are grateful. And Father, we do want to pray according to your word. We know that you say that Israel is the apple of your eye and that you love your people and that you've chosen them, not because they were mighty, you say, not because they were a big nation, but they were nobody. They were nothing. And that's what you do. You take nothing and you make it into something. And we're so grateful that you've taken our lives, which have been so shattered by sin so ravaged by our own narcissistic behavior. And you have redeemed us by your blood. We are thank you that you've made us into something and that you continue to sanctify and move us in ways that we can't even fathom. You have a future and a hope for us that we can't even think of all the things you have for us. And Lord, we're so grateful that it's all because of Jesus, the faithful Israelite the faithful Jew. And we are just wonderfully thankful. Father, we do pray for Israel today. And Father, we do pray for their protection. We pray for their salvation. Father, we await that time that all Israel will be saved. And so, Father, as a church, we want to come and pray according to your word and pray for the Jewish people. And Father, that our hearts would go out to them and our hearts would want to share and love on them and share with them about Jesus. And So Father, we pray that you would give us compassionate hearts. Father, help us not to buy into all the enmity that's in this world, the hatred that's in this world. Help us 
to stop drinking all the haterade that's in this world, Father, and instead just love like you love. And Father, help us to, uh, as we run into people, maybe who are Jewish and who don't know Jesus as their Messiah, Father, help us to share. Give us words to speak. Uh, but Father, give us compassion for the nation. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that we live in an, an age where they now are a nation once again, that though they were scattered, they are once again in their land. And uh, Father, it just is another proof of, of your power. And uh, we know that we're getting close to the end. So Father, we just lift them up to you collectively as a body here at CCF. And uh, we, again, just thank you so much for your wonderful grace and using the Jewish people to reach us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.